So last week, uh, we looked at Psalm 121, and we asked the question, when hard times come, where do we look for help? Uh, It's one of the realities of life uh, that we often look to what we worship when we're struggling with something. So whatever that is, whatever the, wherever you put your, the most hope, that's generally where you where you will turn to when hardship, strife, anything like that hits your life. And be to be clear, everyone worships something. All right, everyone puts their ultimate hope in something, and it's just a matter of determining what it is that gets our devotion when things go sideways in our lives. Uh, and the psalmist was clear throughout that particular psalm of ascent that when he becomes distressed and he's looking for help, his eyes turn towards the maker of heaven and earth. Right? So if you can speak to the God of the universe, the God who spoke our universe into being, how difficult do you think it would be for our most complex problems for him? Right? If he sees the beginning to the end because he's timeless, there's nothing... He can't do and there's nothing that he doesn't know because he's all-knowing then then there's nothing that our Lord cannot handle right in fact it, easy would be the wrong word to describe our most difficult problem that we face you know we're looking at it we're like we can't overcome this you know the diagnosis was bad we got let go the house burnt down it's more than we can possibly bear uh, but when you think about the power that God has, the word, our problems, the word easy just doesn't fit. Right? It would be like uh, us bringing our problems to him would be like our kids asking us what time it is. And we go, Alexa, what time is it? And then we get the answer just like that. It's just as easy for him as speaking. The most difficult thing that we ever have to face. And so we have this God who watches over his people in such a way Uh, that he never gets tired, he never slumbers, um, and he's never caught unaware. He protects us as a shelter on our right side so that the sun will not strike us by day nor the moon strike us at night. And the psalmist tells us that God protects us from all harm. He protects our life. He protects our coming and going both now and forever. So we have this sense of eternality at the end of this psalm. So for those who know Jesus, we are forever his people. Right? And there's nothing that can take us away from him. And we're going to continue on to look at various psalms throughout July. We're going to jump into the book of Ecclesiastes uh, at the beginning of August. Um, but today, as we continue on in the psalms, I wanted to take a look at Psalm 50. And I wanted to ask this question, what does God want from his people? Right? What does God want? from his people. So there are times when God's people wonder, what should I do in my relationship with the Lord? Right? You guys ever think about that? What should I do for God, because of God? Right? I've come to faith in Christ. Now what do I do? What does God want from me? This is a good question to ask. It shows that we are at least thinking about what the next step of our maturity is going to look like. We should spend a little bit of time every single day considering what does it look like for me to be in relationship with God today? Right? How can I put feet on the faith that I've been given? How do I live out that faith that God has blessed me with? These are all great questions. 
But there are a couple of problems that occur as people think about that question. There's often two deviations from the correct path that I'll put into quotation marks for God's people, right? If they are, in fact, God's people. There's two deviations that we must strive to stay away from. The first is being ultra-religious. Right? These are people who are looking for ways to appease God. They're trying to stay on good terms with God. So they got this daily checklist of activities to show, hey, God and I, we're on good terms. Right? It's like trying to keep God from becoming angry with them. They don't understand grace. They don't understand the relationship that comes through that atoning sacrifice for Jesus. So they have this checklist, and then they'll do just a little bit more than what's on that checklist so everybody knows that they're in that relationship with the Lord. They especially want God to know that they are on good terms. The problem here is that people can begin to believe some untrue things about their relationship with God from this position. They may think that God owes them something. Like that, you hear that a lot, right? That's not fair. Why would God bring this to me? I've done all of these things in his name. Why would God let this fall in my lap? So they have this mindset that God owes them something. Or they may begin to think that contributing, they're, they're somehow contributing to God's needs. As though he had needs that we could contribute to. Uh, in like the same way that some of the pagans around Israel believed about their gods. So that's deviation number one. The second deviation that many people fall into is not changing anything at all about their lives after a profession of faith in Jesus. Right? These people say some of the right things about God and faith, but nothing about Scripture touches their lives. Nothing about Scripture changes their lives. You know, the, the people in this group uh, run from right and proper instruction. I know that the Bible says that, but... Yeah, I'm not, I don't believe that. That's not true for me. They associate with all the wrong people for all the wrong reasons. Right? Jesus was called a friend of sinners. He hung out with sinful people because otherwise there wouldn't be anyone else for him to hang out with. But he hung out with sinful people in order to show them their need for that relationship with him. And the people that deviate in this way, they hang out with sinful people because they like to lead a sinful lifestyle. They lie, they slander, and nothing about their lives looks like Jesus. But yet, despite all of that, they believe that they're in good standing with God because they go to church. Or they believe that they have a relationship with Jesus because they prayed a prayer one time. Or that they just believe in God. Yeah, sure, I believe in God. Do you believe in the God of the Bible? Who's that? But I believe in God. And that makes me a good person because I try to do good things. All right, Psalm 50 is going to address both of these types of deviations and both of these types of people. So let's take a look at it together. Follow along with me as I read all 23 verses uh, from this Psalm of Asaph. Beginning in verse 1, it says, The Mighty One, God, the Lord, speaks. He summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting, from Zion, the perfect of beauty, the perfection of beauty, God appears in radiance. Our God is coming. He will not be silent. Devouring fire precedes him and a storm rages around him. On high he summons heaven and earth in order to judge his people. 
Gather, my faithful ones, to me, those who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, for God is the judge. Selah. Listen, my people, and I will speak. I will testify against you, Israel. I am, your, I am God, your God. I do not rebuke you for your sacrifices or for your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. I will not take a bull from your household or male goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and everything in it is mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer a thanksgiving sacrifice to God and pay your vows to the Most High. Call on me in a day of trouble. I will rescue you and you will honor me. But God says to the wicked, What right do you have to recite my statutes and to take my covenant on your lips? You hate instruction and fling my words behind you. When you see a thief, you make friends with him and you associate with murderer or adulterers. You unleash your mouth for evil and harness your tongue for deceit. You sit, maligning your brother, slandering your mother's son. You have done these things and I kept still or silent. Uh, you thought I was just like you, but I will rebuke you and lay out the case before you. Understand this, you who forget God, or I will tear you apart and there will be no one to rescue you. Whoever offers a thanksgiving sacrifice honors me, and whoever orders this, his conduct, I will show him the salvation of God. So right off the bat here, we see in the first four verses, Asaph is introducing us to God. Right? He says, the first thing about God is that God is mighty. We talked about this some last week. Right? There's nothing outside of God's power. Right? The only thing that God cannot do is go outside of his own nature. Right? He could blink out existence in an instant with no effort whatsoever, but he cannot call sin good. Right? Because sin is anything that's outside of his nature. Right? That is our mighty God. Asaph also points out that he is authoritative as he summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. So the idea here is that everything that the sun touches belongs to him. He's in charge of it. He has authority over it. And when he summons people, they have to respond whether they like it or not. In verse 2, Asaph tells us that God is beautiful and radiant. Right? God is the standard of beauty in the entire universe. Right? No matter what your opinion is on God, because He is God, He sets the standard for everything. Right? He declares what is good and bad. And it is good and bad simply because God says so. Your opinion does not matter. God declares and defines what is beautiful and what is ugly because He says so. And I can assure you that Asaph isn't referring to physical appearance here. God is spirit as he is talking to as he's talking about this God. So this is referencing God as the divine person. So he's not actually seeing God. It's not like Christ who came and put on flesh that could be seen. And so he's talking about the nature and character of God. So do you want to be beautiful? Then you must be like God. Right? It has nothing to do with your physical appearance and everything to do with how you pursue after God's nature and try to make yourself resemble God in that way. Verse 3, Asaph also tells us that God is scary. 
And we don't, I don't know if we, how often you think about God being scary, but it says in this verse, we get a flashback about, back to Mount Zion where God speaks with Moses, right? And there's fire and there's thunder crashing down on the mountain where God has settled. Right? Moses is told to come up the mountain alone. Everybody else, you, you go back there, you worship from back there. If you touch this mountain, you die. So imagine this scene where you've got fire and cloud and thunder and lightning crashing down at the top of this mountain. And you are told, hey, you're going to go up there by yourself. We're going to hang out back here. And if we touch that, we die. That's scary, right? Can you imagine what would be going through your head if you saw this? I mean, it's, it's very important that we understand as much as we possibly can Right, Finite people cannot understand an infinite God. But it's very important that we understand as much as possible every single aspect of God's nature. Right? We start running into problems when we start elevating certain aspects of God's nature over other aspects of His nature. Right? Like if, if we talk about me, for example, like I've got certain amounts of empathy, I have certain amounts of love, I have certain amounts of wrath, I have certain amounts of patience. But God is 100% all those things all the time. And we run into problem when we start elevating certain aspects of God's nature over others. And the aspect of God's nature that many people want to elevate over everything else is his love. Right? God is love. So no matter what I do, God loves me. I can act out in disobedience. I can rebel against him for my entire life. It doesn't matter because God is love and he loves me. And we're going to see in verses 16 to 23 that that's simply not true. Right? You can't live your life however you want to and expect a God of love to show up on judgment day and be like, it's okay that you rebelled against me your entire life. It doesn't matter because I love you. People who have that mindset of God are completely creating a God in their own image. They, they want God to be a certain way and it, Asaph even mentions that, God saying that in verse 21. We'll see it later. Asaph understands that God is beautiful. But Asaph also understands that God is not to be trifled with. Right? And finally, the last thing that Asaph points out to us is that God is the judge. One day, God will judge every person that has ever lived, and it will either lead to eternal joy and bliss forever and ever, or it will lead to separation from God forever and condemnation in a place called hell. Both of these are never-ending realities for those who God has judged. The only difference between these two groups of people will be what they did with the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. Have you put your faith in Christ? Jesus came into this world to live the life that we should have lived. He lived it perfectly, no sin whatsoever. He goes to the cross to take on the wrath of God for us, paid everything down to the last drop of God's wrath, and then He died and resurrected three days later. Have you done anything with that in your life? Because the only thing that separates me from someone who is condemned to an eternity in hell, separated from God forever, is what Jesus did for me. Like outside of Christ, there is nothing good in me. The only goodness in me comes from that relationship that I have with Christ.
The same goes for you. Yes, God is love. He loved you so much that He would send His Son to come and sacrifice Himself so that He could take your place and bear God's wrath so you don't have to. That's how much God loves you. But you cannot just walk away from that gift of atoning sacrifice that is offered and say, I will live my life however I want and expect God to say, it's fine. I can't. I can't even count how many times in my life I've heard people say, you know, only God can judge me. And they say it in such a way that seeks to justify an act of sin, right? It's a bad thing that everybody knows is bad and someone calls them out on it and they're like, only God can judge me. You can't judge me. And they're not wrong, right? Only God can judge them and God will judge them and it is not going to go well for them. The same would be true for anyone if they have not repented of their sin and put their faith in Jesus. When we do that, His perfect righteousness becomes ours when we enter into that relationship with Him. And these people have lost sight of that. After introducing God to His readers, Asaph has a word from the Lord that he proclaims. Everything from verse 5 to verse 23 is the Lord speaking. And the, the, this word starts off by telling us who God is talking to in this psalm. Who is he talking to? Well, it says that he's speaking to Israel, the faithful ones. He's talking to Israel, the covenant people. And what does he tell them? He says, there are two groups among you that he's going to speak about specifically in this psalm. And we have that ultra-religious group in verses 7 to 13, and we also have the wicked in 16 to 23. Well, because of the way that this is worded, we can imply that there is a third group, which are the people who are actually faithful to the Lord. All right, so these are all the people that he's speaking to. So let's look again at what God has to say to the ultra-religious. 7 to 13. Listen, my people, and I will speak. I will testify against you, Israel. I am God, your God. I do not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. I will not take a bull from your household or male goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and everything in it is mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? And so we see here in these verses that God is not rebuking this group of people because they have withheld their sacrifices. God is clear that their sacrifices are continually before Him. So they never miss the opportunity to sacrifice and place that before the Lord. The issue here appears to be that uh, they believe that God needs these sacrifices. Right, there's, and somehow, they are doing this in a way to meet a need that God has. And as they're doing that, they are meeting this need with a joyless, thankless heart. But the whole purpose of sacrifices is not because God needs something to eat. He's not sitting up there on his throne going, man, I really wish someone would bring me a snack. Which one of these sacrifices would hurry up and come through so I can get something to eat? Right? That was the prevailing thought among pagan countries that surrounded Israel. Their gods needed food. Their gods needed sleep. Their gods needed to be cared for. And so the worship 
of those gods meant that they would take care of them. And what kind of God is it that needs to be cared for? I mean, it's no God at all. And that's not the case with our God. God doesn't get hungry. And even if he did, everything belongs to him. You think God's sitting around waiting on your measly scraps? Like he says, everything is mine. He doesn't, he's not going to ask us for food. He doesn't uh, have needs because he has provided what we have. Everything that we have it has been provided to us by God. And so he's not sitting around going, man, I wish they would give some of that back to me. I'm hungry. Right? These sacrifices that are being offered up are about restoring right and proper relationship with God. They're meant to come from a heart of repentance and gratefulness that God doesn't simply wipe us off the face of the earth every time we sin. Like, God would be completely within His rights as the supreme, holy ruler of this universe to obliterate us every single time that our thoughts go outside of His will. But instead of doing that, God instituted the sacrificial system so that we would have a way to repent. It's not because God needs a snack. He offered it to us as a way to repent. And ultimately, this sacrificial system is a foreshadowing of the coming ultimate sacrifice uh, of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Right? The, the blood of, of bulls and rams and sheep and birds can't sufficiently cover my sin. And that's the reason why they had to do it over and over and over again. What we needed was someone to stand in our place that was an appropriate atoning sacrifice, which is why Jesus came, died once on the cross, and now if we will put our faith in him, our sin is forgiven forever. Because he was an appropriate sacrifice. And these people, though, they've fallen into the trap of religion. They just do things because they have been told to do them. Right? There's no heart of gratitude behind it. It's just part of the checklist to make sure that they stay in right standing before God. But God doesn't want the animals. He wants the heart of the people to long for holiness. He wants the heart of the people to long for righteousness. He wants them to strive to be obedient, to strive for purity. He wants them to be grateful for everything that he has given to them. And what they are giving back is just rote routine. Right? It's Monday, so I've got to go kill this animal, put it before the Lord. Check. Make sure I say my prayer over my breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Check. All right, spend 15 minutes reading his word. Check. All right, looks like I'm good with God today. And they put it down and they walk away and they don't think about God for the rest of the day. Right? That's what these sacrifices have become to them. It's simply a way to check the box, make sure that they are still right with the Lord. Verses 14 and 15 inform us of what he's specifically after. It says there, offer a thanksgiving sacrifice to God and pay your vows to the Most High. Call on me in a day of trouble. I will rescue you. You will honor me. So what does God want from his people? What does God want from you? He wants a thankful heart. He wants gratitude. 
That He has given you an opportunity to restore your relationship with Him. He wants a heart that turns to Him in times of trouble. And we talked about that more last week. But right there, He says, call on Me in a day of trouble. I will rescue you and you will honor Me. When we call on the Lord in times of trouble, we honor Him. Because we recognize how lowly we are and how amazing He is. He wants a heart that pays our vows to the Most High. Now, when we make promises to the Lord, Lord, if you'll just get me through this, I promise I'll never do it again. Anybody ever made that promise? I made that promise several times in, in college when I was acting like a moron. Bad, bad day the next day. Lord, if you'll get me through this, I will never do that again. Until the next weekend when I did it again because I was an idiot. Right, he wants people that are going to love him enough to pay their vows. When we say we're going to do something in the name of the Lord, we need to do it. He wants a thankful heart. He wants a heart that turns to him in times of trouble. And he wants a heart that pays their vows when they speak them to the Lord. And God is asking us for this as well. I mention all the time here that God wants to use our time, our talent, and our treasure. Right? Our time, our talent, and our treasure. God doesn't need us for that, though. I mean, is that clear? When I say that, I mean, does anybody go home from this place thinking, man, God really needs me today? God doesn't need you. He doesn't need your time. He doesn't need your talent. And he doesn't need your treasure because He gave it all to you. He doesn't need us like that, but He knows how important it is for us to pour ourselves out for his kingdom. There's so much value in us trying to make an impact for eternity. He wants us to serve. He wants us to give. He wants us to be thankful for everything that we've been given because when we do that, we see him rightly, we see ourselves rightly, and we get to work for the kingdom of God because we understand that people are separated from him and going to hell. So when I'm asking you for your time, talent, treasure, it's not like I'm sitting up here begging you to do something for the Lord. I'm begging you to do something for you. Invest in something that matters. Invest in something that has, that has eternal consequences. Right? Don't let this place be part of your checkbox. All right, it's Sunday. Check. Well, am I going Sunday night? I think one check on Sunday is fine. We won't have to do that. All right, what about... You know, read my Bible. Check. I got that today. All right. What about spending time in prayer? Lord, forgive me for my sins. Check. Like, don't let that be your relationship with the Lord. See the value of pouring yourself out for eternal things. God wants us to serve. He wants us to give. He wants us to be thankful for everything that we've been given because it is good for our soul. And the next group that we see that are being spoken to here are the wicked. These are the people who consider themselves to be part of God's people. I mean, they are still ethnically Jewish, after all, so they are still part of Israel. But God has placed them outside of the camp of His people because they're living a life that is opposed to His nature and His character, even while declaring themselves to be part of Israel. I mean, listen to some of the stuff they're doing. God says to the wicked, What right do you have to recite my statutes 
and to take my covenant on your lips. You hate instruction and fling my words behind you. When you see a thief, you make friends with him and you associate with adulterers. You unleash your mouth for evil and harness your tongue for deceit. You sit maligning your brother, slandering, slandering your mother's son. You have done these things and I kept silent. You thought I was just like you. But I will rebuke you and lay out the case before you. Understand this, you who forget God, or I will tear you apart, and there will be no one to rescue you. Whoever offers a thanksgiving sacrifice honors me, and whoever orders his conduct, I will show him the salvation of God. So obviously God is not happy with these people. Right? They're, they're reciting his statutes. And they speak about his covenant, but they hate instruction and they fling God's word behind them. Right, so we should be sitting under God's word as the ultimate authority in our life. But they're saying the things that they find. They're saying that they're part of the covenant. And then when it tells them that they need to change their life, they just chuck that over their shoulder. And they're not going to be bothered with actually living out what the Bible says. And in doing this, they're showing that God, you know, what God says about their life, they, they don't care. Right? It has no importance to them at all. They're, it says they're hanging out with all the wrong kinds of people. They're engaging in lying and slander and tearing other people down. And they've, as they've done all of this, God has remained silent. Right? And that's where people make the mistake of believing that God doesn't care about what we're doing. Right? If, if the lightning bolt doesn't come, Right? If, if someone doesn't approach us and rebuke us, then we somehow believe that that sinful act that we are engaging in, God doesn't care. Right? We're not being rebuked for it. We're not being punished for it. So it must not be a big deal. God loves me so much that me, the fact that I'm acting, actively acting out of his will is not important. When in reality, that is one of God's punishments. Right? God not doing anything to those who are rebelling against him. Him just letting them do whatever they want to do. It's just storing up wrath at the time of their judgment. Right? We see this in Romans chapter 1. If you go back and read that, Paul talks about God giving people over to their most basic desires. Like It's a scary place in the heart of humanity. We pursue after the wrong things all the time. We are constantly pulled away from God's nature and character and we want to do the things that we want to do and it is by the grace of God that he gives us the Holy Spirit that convicts us it's by the grace of God that he gives us the church that should be active in our lives so much so that they can look out and see hey that person's not been here for a while hey that person's not treating their wife well right that person's stepping out on their husband like the church is a gift to, to bring people back into the fold. And for God to just let you go, to pursue after whatever it is that you want in this life, is God showing you He does not love you. And you going about doing whatever you want, despite what it says in God's Word, is you saying that you don't love God. Now, Jesus was clear. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Right? You're not just going to chuck the stuff behind you and act as though it's not important if you truly love Jesus. In verse 22, God says that those who forget him, he will tear them apart. Right? Hey, remember back when we said that God was scary? Like, he's legit scary. 
And when God says, I'm going to tear you apart and no one will rescue you, you should be concerned. Because, we're, again, we're talking about the God of the universe, the God that spoke creation into being. And if he has turned his face against you, what are you going to do about it? No one's coming to save you. He says, but for those who offer thanksgiving sacrifices and for those who honor the Lord, they will receive salvation. And when we really think about what the cross did for us, there should be overwhelming gratitude in our heart to think about what it cost Jesus so that we could be restored in relationship with the Father. Like that should be the, most, the greatest thing. Like that's why I, I break down when I think about that from the pulpit so often. Right? I think about how much I am owed. And it's not good what I'm owed. And to think that I don't get that because of what Jesus did for me on the cross. I am overwhelmed with gratitude. I am overwhelmed. And I, it makes me want to honor the Lord. It makes me want to serve Him. It makes me want to do things that have eternal impact because I realize that when I walk out of this place, the people that God has put around me are lost, dying, and going to hell. And so I want to give him my time. I want to give him my talent. I want, him to, I want to give him my treasure so that I can see people. I want to see their eyes open. I want to see them to love Jesus the way that I love Jesus. And that's what happens in the true heart of a believer in Christ. We want these things. But sometimes we get distracted. Life can throw us curveballs. We, we start doing things that have no eternal impact whatsoever. But the Lord is calling us back to action. Are we doing it? How's your heart? How's your heart here this morning? Are you religious? Do you go through the motions? Check all the boxes? Or do you actually have a relationship with the God of the universe? Have you professed faith in Christ? But nothing in your life has changed? You still do the same things that you did 10, 20, 30 years ago when you said that little prayer? How's your heart? If nothing about your life has changed since you made a profession of faith, that's a problem. Because God is not in the, in the business of leaving us where we are. If we are true believers in Christ, He takes us, He sands us, and He transforms us into the image of Christ. How's your heart today? Is there anything that you need to repent of today? Is God calling you back to something today? And is maybe God saying today, the first day, like, hey, dude, you're not really a believer in Christ. And today is the day that you should make that profession of faith and do it for real. Not just, you know, get out of hell insurance. We're actually looking for a life change that's going to have impact on the kingdom of God for eternity. Let's think about that as we pray together. <clears throat> Father, it is my desire that we would be people that seek to bring you honor and glory, that we come before you constantly with a thankful heart. 
that we pursue you with everything that we have. And everything that we have is everything that you have given us. So when we turn around and give that back, it's not like we have actually met any of your needs because you don't have any needs for us to meet. But Lord, we have tons of needs that we need you to meet in our life every single day. And the most important is our remembering that Jesus is necessary for restored relationship. And I pray that we would be thankful to know that that gift is out there, that it has been promised to us and that nothing can take it away. And when we realize that the people around us that you have sovereignly placed around us are lost, dying, and going to hell, I pray that it would change the way we look at our life. It would change the way we prioritize how we spend our time, where we spend our talent, and how we spend the treasure that you have given us. Open our eyes to the truth of this and help us to love you well through it. It's in your son's precious name that I pray. Amen.